Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Each year of the 1990s seemed to be jam-packed with captivating news stories and other events that touched our lives in different ways. 1993 was no exception. It was a year filled with shocking crimes and unexpected losses. There was also hope for peace in the Middle East. While at the same time, we saw the beginning of a new phase of terrorism that hinted at much worse things to come in the new millennium. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back and counting down the top 10 most memorable stories from 1993. Number 10, a tennis star is attacked. On Friday, April 30th, 1993, 19-year-old Monica Selisch took to the tennis court in Hamburg, Germany to play a quarterfinal match versus Magdalena Maleva. The teenage tennis sensation, who was currently number one atop the women's standings, won the first set 6-1 and was leading in the second 4-3 when action halted for a changeover break. Selisch took a seat on the bench, toweled off, and then leaned forward to take a sip of water. She says the water had barely touched her lips when she felt a horrible pain in her back, which caused her to let out a startled yelp. (laughs) Selish twisted to look behind her and saw a man wearing a baseball cap with a sneer across his face. His arms were raised above his head and his hands were clutching a long knife. He lunged at Selish again, but luckily a security guard stepped in and grabbed the man around the neck. Everything happened so fast, the young tennis player wasn't able to process what was going on. She took a few steps with her hand to her shoulder. Officials rushed to her side and she slowly collapsed to the ground. The 38-year-old man who attacked Selish had traveled to the stadium that day from his small town in eastern Germany. For several years, the man had been obsessed with another young tennis star, Steffi Graf. And when Selish displaced her from the top of the standings, he got the twisted idea to take revenge. His plan was to hurt Selish and end her career so Graf could regain the top seed. Selish required surgery after the attack. The nine-inch knife had penetrated a full inch and a half into her upper back, but luckily had missed her spine and vital organs. It's believed that if Selish wasn't bent over when the knife was thrust into her back, she would likely have been paralyzed. Regardless, recovery was a long and difficult journey. Selish did not return to the tennis court for two years. And even though she managed to win the 1996 Australian Open and make it to the finals at the U.S. Open against Steffi Graf that same year, she was never the same. The damage to her psyche was deeper than the actual wound. Selish suffered from PTSD, anxiety, and depression. She played in her last major tournament in 2003 and then officially retired in 2008. Despite her shortened career, Selish is still considered one of the greatest women players ever. She possessed the most recognized and successful double-fisted forehand in tennis, along with a top-flight two-handed backhand. And Selish was also the original grunter. although she seems tame by today's standards. As for the man who stabbed her in October 1993, he was convicted in a Hamburg court of causing grievous bodily harm. 
But he spent no time in jail receiving a suspended two-year sentence, which outraged Sullish and others in the tennis community. Number nine, the storm of the century. In March 1993, the east coast of the United States and Canada was hit with one of the worst winter storms of the 20th century. It stretches for 2,100 miles from the Gulf of Mexico to New England. It's caused at least 15 deaths. Technically, it is not a hurricane, but in some areas you wouldn't know the difference. Torrential rains, heavy snow, high tides, and devastating winds. That is what is hitting the east coast this evening. The blizzard of 93, also referred to as the storm of the century and the superstorm of 1993, began on Friday, March 12th, and over the next three days, blasted its way from the Gulf Coast all the way up to Canada. The Category 5 storm was particularly bad because it combined lots of snow with hurricane winds, a phenomenon sometimes called a snow Parts of the Appalachian Mountain region saw more than three and a half feet of snow with 35-foot snowdrifts in some areas. Farther north, New England and eastern Canada got anywhere from 15 inches to two feet of snow. Even Florida, which rarely sees even a dusting of snow, received four inches during the storm, while parts of Alabama reported as much as 18 inches. Throughout the path of the storm, trees were uprooted from the weight of the snow, and emergencies were declared in a dozen states, with roads and airports across the East Coast shut down for days, which was especially bad for the thousands of spring breakers trying to either get home or to their vacation destinations. It's estimated that the historic blizzard killed more than 300 people and caused up to $11 billion in damage. Number eight, the death of a young actor. On the night of October 30th, 1993, 23-year-old River Phoenix arrived at the Viper Room, the West Hollywood Club co-owned by his friend Johnny Depp. Phoenix was joined by his girlfriend, actor Samantha Mathis, and two of his younger siblings, Rain and Leaf, who now goes by the name Joaquin. Mathis, who met Phoenix while filming the movie The Thing Called Love, thought they were just going to the club to drop off Rain and Leaf. But after they walked inside, Phoenix told his girlfriend he wanted to stay because he was asked to go on stage with the band playing that night at the Viper Room. Mathis told The Guardian in October 2022, she didn't want to stay. Something felt wrong, something she didn't quite understand yet. But 45 minutes later, it would become horribly clear. The band playing at the Viper Room was a super group called P. It was made up of several of Phoenix's famous friends, including Johnny Depp and butthole surfer singer Gibby Haynes. Joining them on stage at that particular gig were two members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, bassist Flea and guitarist John Frusciante. Phoenix had actually just been on a major drug binge with Frusciante, getting high for several days straight with very little sleep. In 1993, Phoenix was one of Hollywood's hottest young stars. He first gained fame because of his natural intensity in the 1986 film, Stand By Me. I'm just wishing that I could go someplace where nobody knows me. (laughs) At the age of 17, Phoenix was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his work in the movie Running on Empty. And in 1991, he received rave reviews for his role in the haunting indie film My Own Private Idaho. But by all accounts, Phoenix hated fame. 
And at an early age, he decided the only thing it was good for was to use it as a platform to talk about the causes that were important to him. Here he is on The Phil Donahue Show. I would like to redefine for everyone here, if possible, uh, what what is an environmentalist? I think that we all just have a natural birthright to be so. It shouldn't be a label. In fact, you know, if, if the government has any qualms about it, they should uh, put it in perspective of maybe the defense budget, whereas this is, a, this is defense that we're talking about, defense for our, our life support system. The young actor who spent his early childhood with his hippie parents in the Christian cult, The Children of God, was known for his adamant stand on pure living. He was a strict vegetarian and an active environmentalist. But somewhere along the way, he also became a drug abuser. His girlfriend, Samantha Mathis, says Phoenix was already high when they arrived at the Viper Room that night in October 1993. She told The Guardian that she went to the bathroom and when she came back, she saw Phoenix being pushed out a side door by a bouncer. Mathis was unaware that while she was in the bathroom, Phoenix had snorted cocaine and heroin, a combination known as a speedball. He followed it up with some Valium. Mathis ran to the door and went outside, just in time to see her boyfriend collapse on the sidewalk and go into convulsions. She banged on the door for help, but no one answered. Frantically, Mathis ran to the front of the Viper room, bursting inside to look for Phoenix's siblings. They all ran back to Phoenix, who remained lifeless on the sidewalk. And that's when Joaquin placed a desperate 911 call. Stay on the line with me and calm down a little bit, all right? Yeah, I'm calm, but he's having okay. seizures. Get over here, please. You must get over here, please. Okay, take it easy, okay? Okay, now I think he's at volume or something. I don't know. Please, because he's dying. Please. River Phoenix was rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center, and when he arrived, he was in full cardiac arrest with no pulse or blood pressure. Attempts to resuscitate him failed, and at 1.51 a.m. on October 31st, 1993, River Phoenix was declared dead. He was 23 years old. Two weeks after Phoenix's death, a toxicology report was released. The young actor had eight times the lethal dose of heroin and cocaine in his system when he died, along with ephedrine, Valium, and marijuana. The Viper Room temporarily closed after Phoenix's death and fans left heartfelt notes, flowers, and tributes by the door to honor the actor who had become part of Hollywood's tragic history of young deaths and talent lost too soon. Since then, every young actor who shows early promise, from Leonardo DiCaprio to Timothy Chalamet, gets compared to Phoenix. And of course, his younger brother Joaquin has gone on to become a star in his own right. In a 2020 interview, Joaquin Phoenix said, he has felt River's presence on the set of every movie he's ever made. Speaking of movies, let's take a look at what was hot at the box office in 1993. Welcome to Jurassic Park. The Steven Spielberg classic Jurassic Park stomped its way into theaters in June 1993, and it became the top-selling movie of the year, earning $914 million worldwide, which made it actually the highest-grossing movie ever at the time. Other big earners in 1993 included The Fugitive, The Firm, Sleepless in Seattle, and everybody's favorite British nanny, Mrs. Doubtfire. Number 7. A lurid crime becomes a tabloid fascination. And a warning, this next story contains details that might not be suitable for all listeners. 
On the night of June 23, 1993, a young wife in Manassas, Virginia, says her husband of four years came home drunk and then sexually assaulted her. What happened next shocked and captivated the public like almost no other news story in the 1990s. 24-year-old Lorena Bobbitt went to the kitchen after her husband, 26-year-old John Wayne Bobbitt, fell asleep in the bed beside her. In the kitchen, she grabbed a 12-inch knife, returned to the bedroom, and cut off his penis. Lorena says she has no memory of the attack. She remembers John jumping on top of her, and then the next thing she knew, she was driving her 1991 Mercury Capri on the highway. It was about 4 a.m. There was something in her hand, and there was a knife beside her with blood on it. Lorena rolled down the driver's side window and threw the thing in her hand onto the side of the road. It turned out to be her husband's severed penis. Amazingly, a search team found John's body parts several hours later in a grassy field opposite a 7-Eleven. And surgeons, even more amazingly, successfully reattached it. When the story broke, it became an instant media sensation. The gory details splashed across newspapers, and it quickly became the butt of jokes on late-night television. When John went on trial on charges of malicious assault in November 1993, it was nothing less than a circus. Reporters from around the world packed the courtroom. Hundreds of spectators gathered outside the building, while opportunistic entrepreneurs sold T-shirts for $10 each with the inscription, Manassas, Virginia, a cut above the rest. During the trial, Lorena took the stand and tearfully told the court that her husband had subjected her to years of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. John Bobbitt denied the accusations and in the end was found not guilty. The jury agreed with the defense that the evidence against him was circumstantial. After the verdict, John leaned into his celebrity and embarked on a 40-city tour, going on TV and radio shows, autographing steak knives, and appearing as a judge on a New Year's Eve pageant hosted by Howard Stern. See, I would love to see the stitches and everything. I'm going to tell you something. I don't know what money means to you at this point, but I would take $2,000 of my own money right now. I'll give it to you in cash. $2,000 if you show the world your penis right now. I'll get the cash right out of my pocket. I will hand it to you as we speak. $2,000. No, I can't do it, Howard. When it came time for Lorena's trial in January 1994, similar craziness ensued. Outside the Virginia courthouse, vendors sold sliced sodas and hot dogs, penis-shaped chocolates, and a t-shirt bearing the words, Love Hurts. Once again, Lorena Bobbitt detailed how she had lived in fear of her husband, who began abusing her shortly after they were married in 1989. Lorena told the court about the night that John came home drunk in June 1993 and assaulted her. I, I was sitting by in the bed, and I told him, why he do this to me again and again and again? What did he say? Nothing. He pushed me away. He said he doesn't care. He doesn't care for my feelings. Even still, Lorena remained a punchline. The issue of domestic violence, which was at the center of this story, was buried in the lurid details of the unusual crime. During the trial, shock jock Howard Stern made comments on his nationwide radio show that he didn't believe Lorena was raped because she wasn't that good looking. 
Following the sensational two-week trial, Lorena was found not guilty due to temporary insanity brought on by the trauma of being abused. Under Virginia law, she was required to spend 45 days in a psychiatric hospital to be evaluated before being released. In the years that followed, John Wayne Bobbitt capitalized further on his notoriety, making two adult films before finally disappearing from the public consciousness. As for Lorena, she changed her name from Bobbitt to Gallo and runs the Lorena Gallo Foundation in Virginia, which focuses on domestic abuse issues. In 2018, her story was re-examined in an Amazon Prime documentary series co-produced by Jordan Peele. The four-part series entitled Lorena focuses the story away from the act itself and more towards the deeper tale of domestic violence and sexism, and in doing so, reclaim Lorena's narrative so that it was no longer a punchline. Number six, a superstar retires, but not for long. On October 6, 1993, basketball's greatest player and perhaps the world's most recognizable athlete stunned the NBA by announcing his retirement. I love the game of basketball, I always will. I just feel that at this particular time in my career, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. Uh, I've achieved a lot in that short amount of time, if, uh, if you want to call it short. Um, but I just feel that I don't have anything else for myself to prove. 30-year-old Michael Jordan had, in fact, achieved a lot, winning seven scoring titles and leading the Chicago Bulls to three straight championships. The last one was just a few months earlier in June 93, when the Bulls beat the Phoenix Suns four games to two. But shortly after the win, Jordan was devastated by the murder of his father, James Jordan, who was shot and killed in North Carolina in July 93. During the retirement news conference at the Bulls Training Center, Jordan said the loss of his dad made him realize that everything could be taken away from him. Several of his teammates, including Scottie Pippen, stood behind him as he sat with his wife Juanita and Bulls owner Jerry Reinsdorf to make the announcement. Reinsdorf called it a bittersweet day, but said he was convinced that Jordan was doing the right thing. Jordan didn't give up on sports altogether. In fact, he soon found a new passion. Once Jordan had publicly announced his retirement to a stunned world, he privately announced to Reinsdorf he wanted to switch sports and play baseball. Reinsdorf, who also owned the Chicago White Sox, obliged and granted the high-profile rookie a minor league contract. But Jordan never made it out of double-A ball during a season that was marred by an MLB player strike. And in March 1995, after a 17-month break, Jordan returned to basketball and the Chicago Bulls, leading his team to three more spectacular championships and cementing his role as the greatest of all time. While we're talking sports, let's take a quick look at some other winners in 1993, starting off with this unforgettable moment for Toronto baseball fans. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt, left field, way back, Blue Jays win it! On October 23, 1993, the Toronto Blue Jays beat the Philadelphia Phillies four games to two to win their second World Series in a row. Joe Carter described his memorable walk-off home run as the ultimate sports fantasy. 
In hockey, the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup, beating the Los Angeles Kings four games to one. Sadly, it was the last time the Stanley Cup has been won by a Canadian team. And the Dallas Cowboys destroyed the Buffalo Bills 52-17 at the Super Bowl. It was the Bills' third straight loss at the Super Bowl, something they would repeat one more time in 1994. Number 5. A Peace Deal in the Middle East On September 13, 1993, a crowd of 3,000 people gathered on the White House lawn for a moment that no one ever thought would be possible. Millions more watched on TV as two old enemies came together to recognize each other's right to exist. For the past several months, secret meetings between the Israelis and Palestinians were held in Oslo in an attempt to solve the bitter struggle over territory in the Middle East, which had raged since the end of the Second World War. The result was a set of agreements called the Oslo Accords. Under the deal, the Palestinians would recognize the state of Israel and the Israelis would recognize the PLO as the sole representative of the Palestinian people. In addition, Israel would withdraw from Gaza and the West Bank, handing over day-to-day running of those territories to a newly created elected parliament called the Palestinian Authority. Just a few years earlier, such an agreement seemed impossible. But then in 1992, Yitzhak Rabin, a former military general with a hardline reputation, was elected prime minister of Israel, and he quickly moved to breathe new life into the stalled Middle East peace talks. After spending most of his life fighting the Palestinians, he felt the time had come to make peace with them. In September 1993, when Rabin joined PLO leader Yasser Arafat on the White House lawn to sign the Oslo Accords, he said it was time to stop the violence. We who have fought against you, the Palestinians, we say to you today in a loud and a clear voice, enough of blood and tears. Enough! It really was a breathtaking sight to see Rabin and Yasser Arafat together. The PLO leader had been considered a terrorist for nearly 30 years, and now there he was in Washington making peace. You've probably seen the iconic photo of Rabin and Arafat shaking hands in front of U.S. President Bill Clinton. After signing the historical agreement, President Clinton had to coax the two men to shake hands with a gentle nudge. You should check out the photo, or better yet, watch the video on YouTube. Arafat looks completely overjoyed. Rabin looks like he's grimacing. For their peace efforts, Rabin, Arafat, and Israeli Foreign Minister Shimon Peres were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994. The Oslo Accords were just the first step. If all went well, the interim agreement was supposed to be replaced by an even more comprehensive peace deal within five years. But sadly, that never happened. In November 1995, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli man who was against making peace with the Palestinians. Following Rabin's death, the deal he reached with Yasser Arafat fell apart, and the Middle East peace process has remained stalled ever since. Number four, the World Trade Center is attacked. On February 26, 1993, at 12.17 p.m., a thunderous explosion rocked Lower Manhattan. The epicenter was the parking garage below the World Trade Center. Six people were killed almost instantly in the blast that carved out a crater in the floor of the garage that was 100 feet in diameter and several stories deep. 
Smoke and flames streamed upward into the North Tower, forcing panic-stricken people covered in soot to pour out of the building. More than a thousand people were injured that day, some with broken bones from the rush to escape. But the real horror story here was in the garage level of the World Trade Center. That's where the explosion was. That's where the fire was. That's where firefighters were seriously injured, and they found people dead, trapped in their cars. What caused the explosion was unclear at first. But it was soon discovered that a rental van packed with a 1,500-pound bomb had been parked in the garage on level P2. It was then detonated by an unknown terrorist who escaped in a getaway vehicle. The news was shocking. At the time, it was the deadliest act of terrorism perpetrated on U.S. soil. And it marked the beginning of a new type of terrorism that involved the indiscriminate killing of as many civilians as possible. Within two days of the bombing, the FBI discovered in the rubble a charred and mangled piece of the van's chassis that bore its vehicle identification number. That number led authorities to a van from a rental agency in Jersey City that had been reported stolen. Investigators got an unbelievable break when on March 4th, one of the men who carried out the bombing returned to claim a refund on the $400 deposit he had left for the van. Mohammed Salameh, an Islamic fundamentalist, was arrested, along with three other men. A fifth man, Ramzi Youssef, who is considered to be the mastermind of the plot, remained at large until 1995. When he was finally arrested in Pakistan, Youssef revealed that his goal was to knock down one of the twin towers with the bomb, with the collapsing debris knocking over the other. An eerie premonition of 9-11. Yusuf, who was born in Kuwait to Pakistani and Palestinian parents, said his motivation for the 1993 attack was retaliation for the United States' support of Israel. He and his followers wanted to punish Americans so they would understand the plight of Muslims in Palestine. Another man who drove the rider van into the parking garage below the World Trade Center was also captured in 1995 in Jordan and taken back to New York. Yusuf and the five other co-conspirators were all convicted for their roles in the attack and sentenced to prison terms of 240 years each. A seventh alleged conspirator, Abdul Yassin, who fled the United States in March 93, remains at large. Number three, the brutal and senseless murder of a British toddler. And again, details in this story are not suitable for all listeners. On February 12, 1993, two-year-old James Bulger went to a shopping mall near Liverpool, England with his mother. The toddler was in good spirits, occasionally breaking free from his mom and running off without her. When James's mom stopped at a butcher shop, she thought her son was at her side, but when she looked down, he wasn't there. In fact, James had been lured away from his mother and from the shopping center, taken on a two-mile walk by two kidnappers. Two hours later, the little boy was violently attacked, left dead on a railway track, where his body was further mutilated when he was run over by a train. The horrific murder was made even more disturbing when it was revealed that the boy's killers were only 10 years old. Haunting security camera footage showed the two older boys leading little James away from the mall by his hand. The death of the baby boy devastated his family and community, and it made headlines around the world. A final journey for James Bulger, his infant coffin surrounded by flowers in his memory. 
Hundreds of people looked on as his father and uncles bore him into the local family church. The arrest and subsequent conviction of John Venables and Robert Thompson ignited a national debate in the UK around young offenders. The boys who were 11 at the time of trial were tried as adults and each received a 15-year sentence. They became the youngest people ever to be convicted of murder in Britain, which led to calls from human rights activists to raise the legal age that someone can be tried as an adult from 10 to 12 or even 14. Lawyers for Venables and Thompson also argued that the adult court venue and publicity around the case made it impossible for the schoolboys to be given a fair trial. Plus, at the end of the trial, the judge allowed both boys to be named out of public interest, even though the identity of child defendants is usually not revealed. In 1999, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that the pair, in fact, did not receive a fair trial and awarded costs and expenses of £29,000 to John Venables and £15,000 to Robert Thompson. Venables and Thompson were released from custody in 2001 at the age of 18 after serving eight years. They were given new identities at a cost of several million dollars. Venables, who was considered the driving force of the murder, has been sent back to jail two times since his release for possession of child abuse images. He is eligible for parole again in 2023. Number two, the Battle of Mogadishu. On October 3, 1993, a U.S. military special ops team was sent into Mogadishu in Somalia on a mission that was expected to take 30 to 45 minutes. But instead, it became one of the deadliest firefights faced by U.S. forces since Vietnam. In one of his final acts after losing the 1992 election to Bill Clinton, President George H.W. Bush deployed American forces to Somalia, which was in the midst of a raging civil war and man-made famine that had killed upwards of 350,000 people. The U.S. soldiers were given the job of protecting the distribution of food aid, which was being hampered by local warlords like Mohammed Farah Adit. By the fall of 1993, a decision was made to arrest two of Adit's top lieutenants in an effort to neutralize his control over Mogadishu. On October 3rd, U.S. forces set out on a snatch-and-grab mission to arrest the two men. The plan was rangers would helicopter in, lower themselves on ropes, and surround the building where the men were hiding. A ground convoy of trucks and Humvees would wait outside the gate to carry away the troops and their prisoners. But things did not go as planned. Local militias had set up barricades which prevented the ground convoy from immediately reaching its target. Two U.S. Blackhawk helicopters circled overhead until insurgents shot them down with rocket-propelled grenades. About 90 U.S. Rangers and Delta Force operators rushed to the rescue of the troops in the helicopters, but they were caught in an intense exchange of gunfire and trapped for 18 hours in what became known as the Battle of Mogadishu. The battle was portrayed in the 2002 movie Black Hawk Down. 18 Americans and hundreds of Somalis died in the urban firefight, including several Army special operators and helicopter crewmen whose bodies were dragged through the streets by jubilant mobs. I can tell you that we're being told by Somalis that they have at least one American prisoner, perhaps two. I have seen with my own eyes, however, dead American soldiers being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu near where the fighting was concentrated last night and early into this morning. 
news outlets broadcast the horrific images, which put immense pressure on U.S. President Bill Clinton to pull out of Somalia, which he did, ordering all special forces out of the country by March 31, 1994. After the U.S. departure, Somalia became a safe haven for extremist groups, and the loss instilled a new narrative for terrorist organizations, like a little-known group called Al-Qaeda and its leader Osama bin Laden, that the Americans can be defeated. With enough hardship and tragedy, they would retreat. Number one, a fiery end to a 51-day standoff. On February 28, 1993, an 80-vehicle convoy of ATF agents barreled down a dusty rural road near Waco, Texas. Their destination was a compound of buildings belonging to the Branch Davidians who were believed to be stockpiling weapons. David Koresh, the leader of the religious group, told believers that the apocalypse was imminent and that God had willed the Branch Davidians to build an army of God. ATF agents say that when they stepped out of their vehicles that cold, drizzly morning in February, they heard pop-pop as bullets flew past them and kicked up dirt. They saw muzzle flashes in two upstairs windows and started firing back. Branch Davidians say they did not shoot their weapons until they were fired at first. Either way, before the day was over, 10 people were dead, four agents and six Branch Davidians. Dozens were injured in the chaotic firefight, including David Koresh, who'd been shot in the side. For the next 51 days, a standoff between ATF and FBI negotiators and Koresh played out live on television. Several days in, Koresh sent out a video to negotiators that made it clear he was in it for the long haul. Waco is going to bear witness against the ATF. And I do not appreciate it, and never will I ever appreciate somebody coming here with two helicopters and cattle cattle trailers and all that, and uh, pushing people around with guns. Hey, I'll meet you at the doorstep any day, you know, and somebody will get hurt. If you want to keep playing that game, I'm talking to you. Somebody's going to get hurt. In response, the on-scene commander decided to raise the stakes, and he cut electricity to the buildings. When that didn't work, other tactics were used, which included shining bright lights into bedroom windows all through the night and blasting music and unusual sounds like dentist drills and Tibetan chants. Towards the end of March, nearly a month after the siege began, the FBI allowed Koresh to meet with his attorney and they came up with a new plan. Koresh promised that he would exit the compound after he had written his interpretation of the seven seals referenced in the Book of Revelation. But by now, the FBI had run out of patience. They figured it was another empty promise from Koresh, and they feared he might be planning a Jonestown-style mass suicide. So the FBI turned to Attorney General Janet Reno, who gave permission to use tear gas to flush out Koresh and his followers. As the sun rose on April 19, 1993, on the 51st day of the standoff, the FBI issued a final warning through a loudspeaker. David, individuals inside the Branch Davidian compound. We are in the process of placing tear gas into the building. Exit the compound now. Submit to the proper authority, David. Then modified tanks moved toward the complex. They rammed holes in the walls of the sprawling building. The tanks were equipped with a gas generator that sprayed a fine mist of tear gas inside. 
The attack continued for hours, spraying more and more tear gas into the building. But no one came out. Around 12 p.m., four hours into the operation, a set of fires broke out within the compound. Aided by strong winds, the blaze moved quickly, engulfing everything in flames. The Davidians were trapped. Only nine people managed to escape. 75 others died, including 25 children. Many died because of the fire, while others were buried alive in a concrete bunker which collapsed in the basement. And five children and 12 adults died from gunshot wounds, including David Koresh, who was shot in the forehead. The flames may be out, but a firestorm of controversy rages on after the assault on the Branch Davidian compound. Officials are starting to look for answers after doomsday in Waco. Charges and countercharges followed the incident. How the fire started and whether federal agents or the Davidians were responsible for the deadly outcome was hotly contested. The final word came in July 2000, following a special counsel investigation called by Attorney General Janet Reno. The investigation concluded that the FBI did not start the fire that destroyed the compound. Regardless, the Waco tragedy became something of a rallying cry for those who were concerned about unlawful government overreach. For right-wing militias and patriot groups, what happened at Waco and also at Ruby Ridge was evidence that the federal government was a threat. Among those who was angered by the outcome at Waco was Timothy McVeigh, the Army veteran had actually gone down to Waco during the siege to sell pro-God and anti-government stickers. Two years later, in 1995, he took revenge by detonating a massive bomb outside a government building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people, including 19 children. Since Ruby Ridge and Waco, the ATF and FBI have handled other standoffs very differently. In 1996, a group called the Montana Freeman started a standoff with federal officials rather than get evicted from a foreclosed ranch. This time, the FBI waited them out. The confrontation lasted 81 days, 30 days longer than Waco, and this time, everybody walked out alive. This new playbook was used again in 2014 in Oregon when Cliven Bundy and other protesters occupied a federal wildlife refuge. It also ended peacefully after a 41-day standoff. Well, that's a wrap on 1993 and 2022. This is our last episode of the year. But stay tuned because we have lots of great episodes planned for 2023. If you have a suggestion for a topic, please let me know. You can reach out to me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. Or you can send an email to 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 